Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast last year in October. Crystal Fleming. Uh, she is an author, public intellectual, and expert on white supremacy and global racism. She's also an associate professor of sociology at Stony Brook University with affiliations in the Department of Africana Studies and Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies. Dr. Fleming is the author of two books that critically claimed how to be less stupid about race on racism, white supremacy, and the racial divide, and resurrecting slavery, racial legacies, and white supremacy uh, in France. Uh, you see her writing in various publications. Um, and uh, she is our guest uh, for the hour today. Uh, Crystal Fleming, welcome to the program. Hi, Tom. Thanks so much for having me. We appreciate you taking the time. Uh, so, uh, Crystal Fleming, um, I-, I want to, uh, I guess, start with the title of your book, How to Be Less Stupid About Race. Um, <laughs> what, 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 was your, what was your goal here? Well, as you can tell from the title, Tom, I do have a sense of humor. Um, and uh, for those who get the book, um, all over the cover, there are all these phrases, you know, that really represent different kinds of racial stupidity. So everything from I don't see color to my dentist is black, so I get it, um, or, you know, uh, you know, references to reverse racism, which doesn't exist. We can talk about that more maybe later in the hour, if you like. Um, but it, my motivation for writing the book is my entire career of researching and teaching about and, and studying uh, the history and legacies of, of racism. But also, I have to be honest, the 2016 election, well, the, the whole election cycle was really a great motivator. And it's not just a a question of who won that election, uh, because I really, as I write about in the book, I really started to come to a realization myself uh, during Obama's presidency, actually, that the problems of, of white supremacy, the problems of systemic racism, no party has a monopoly on that. This is this is something that is an issue and a problem across the board, and Democrats and Republicans and everyone in between and beyond those two polls um, are, are implicated in it. So uh, I think one of the things that's maybe a little unusual about my book and about my, my teaching and writing around racism is that it's it's quite nonpartisan in the sense that, yes, uh, I don't want to pretend that there are you know no differences between the two major parties. There are. Uh, but my agenda is not to tell you that one of these parties has got it right. Instead, what I want to really raise awareness about is the history and the origins of, of, of modern racism and how it's become so deeply embedded and interwoven into all of our major uh, 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 sectors of society, all of our social institutions. No one is exempt. So um, I'm clearly not the first person uh, to make this kind of intervention. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr., one of the uh, my favorite quotes from him, and it's one that you might not have heard before, uh, but he said in, in, in one of his speeches that nothing in the world is more dangerous than sincere ignorance and conscientious stupidity. Uh, so Dr. King knew that racial ignorance, racial stupidity, there's a price, there's a consequence, and those consequences are deadly. The consequences uh you know, are the fact that people of color, black people, Native Americans, um, uh, Latinx people, 
in particular, uh, are systematically disadvantaged in every sphere of society, from health and well-being to the fact that we have shorter lifespans, to the racial wealth gap, which is growing and which was already enormous even when we had a black president, to politics, uh, where uh, uh, white citizens continue to exercise a quasi-monopoly over our, our government, everywhere from the Supreme Court to uh, seats in Congress. So, you know, the book tries to demystify all of this and kind of, you know, in only only a couple hundred pages, but, you know, try to, you know, get to the roots of how did we get here and what can we do about it? And I want to I want to explore that history. Uh, and also you in your book, you have some major fallacies. You've already talked about one, the political fallacy um, that both parties have, you know, have some problems here. I wanted to uh, illustrate the I guess the, the problems of conversation about race mm-hmm. by referring to um, an article you wrote to, for the HuffPost. This is back in 2017. Mm-hmm. Um, and Starbucks had launched a new campaign called Hashtag Race Together. And, yeah. and you, uh, so I want, I want you to tell me a little bit about that. You're, you're saying, well, it's good <laughs> that they're, they're wanting us to have a, a conversation on race, but it, I, you said it, it illustrates the problems if, if you don't frame it in the right way. Well, yeah. So there were multiple issues there, and this is one of the things I also open up uh, with in the book, the Starbucks um, thing. So for those who might not have heard about this or might not remember what happened, uh, a couple of years ago, Starbucks started a campaign, Race Together, hashtag Race Together. And the bright idea was that baristas were going to uh, take, you know, random, you know, members of the public, take their coffee cups and write on the side of the cup, hashtag race together. And that was supposed to function as an invitation to talk about race. There was basically no, uh, no other guidelines given beyond that. And, you know, listen, some people, particularly those who might not study these issues, they might think that, well, what's wrong with that? Isn't it good to encourage uh, Americans to talk about race? Well, as I said in that HuffPo article and as I write in How to Be Less Stupid About Race, the answer is no, no. It's not good to just tell people to talk about race because part of what we need to do as a society, as a country, is to realize most of us don't know enough to have an intelligent discussion about race and racism. So the first step, actually, is to help provide educational resources to address that racial stupidity and racial ignorance that Dr. King knew had deadly consequences. So going back to Starbucks, what I would have liked to have seen, and we actually, they, you know, kind of, you know, they've had some ongoing issues with racism, and they uh, tried to address this down the line. But what what would have been a better idea would be to say, hey, we as a company, we realize that racism is a serious problem. We are going to provide resources to better understand what racism is, how it functions for our employees, maybe starting with the leadership, who perhaps also themselves didn't have enough education and resources and understanding of the issue. Um, And, you know, I think going back to this notion of you know, giving random members of the public a cup and putting this hashtag on it and saying, let's talk about race. We also have to be clear that people of color and and white people are not, we don't have the same position and power in our society. And because people of color 
uh, and black people actually experience racism and are disadvantaged by it, um, you know, asking random people of color, hey, let's talk about race, you, you know, especially without a framework, especially without, you know, some kind of compassion and understanding around racism as a real issue that traumatizes generations of, of people of color, I think that that also could, could be a source of harm. Um, so this is part of what I lay out uh, in, in that article and in my book. And as some of your listeners might remember, actually, subsequent to this, so after the Race Together campaign, which was very criticized and then had to be kind of, you know, uh, rethought. Um, but there was, an, you know, there was an issue in Philadelphia at a Starbucks where um, there were two black men, actually business owners, um, who were uh, trying to have a meeting there and were escorted out by police because one of the uh, one of the Starbucks employees, I guess, they didn't want to race together, and they thought that these two black men, um, you know, were not in their place, that they shouldn't be there, that they, you know, so all of this, so so the, so there were viral videos of these black men, you know, being led out by you know armed police with 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 deadly weapons, um, and this also created another, you know, drama um, and crisis for Starbucks. After this, finally, Starbucks closed all of its locations uh, in the U.S. to have uh, some kind of, you know, teaching and, and, and some workshopping around issues of racism um, to address these kinds of issues. But it would have been great if they had thought about that before, that you actually need to teach your employees, you need to teach your community members about what racism is and what anti-racism is uh, before just say, let's talk about it. So I want to pause here uh, just to just to highlight this particular instance struck me because it seems kind of desperate, you know, that this is how mm-hmm. we're going to, have to talk about race. The barista is going to write this randomly, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, but but it's it sort of illustrates where we are in, in this country. It, uh, you know, we, we don't know how to talk about this, and we, we don't exactly. even have the same framework. So uh, where I want to pause before we get into some of the others is uh, how do we have this conversation? Yeah, yeah. Thank you for, you know, um, highlighting that, just the desperation that this shows. You know, we're leaving it to baristas to randomly talk to people. I think part of what we have to, you know, recognize and wrap our heads around, as I mentioned earlier, is that most of us, and this means hundreds of millions of American citizens, have not been formally educated about what racism is, where it comes from, and what to do about it. You can make it through all of your formal education. You could go through uh, not just, you know, primary school and high school. You can go to college and graduate school. You can become a lawyer, a physician, a professor, a judge in this country, and never have been required to actually study racism. It seems unbelievable, but it's true, and it is in this, you know, this culture of um, ignorance and of, uh, you know, folks literally not being educated about the issue, that we then find ourselves in a situation where, you know, Starbucks would say, well, gosh, let's just leave it up to the baristas. <laughs> so I think part of what needs to happen, and it's why I do what I do as an, as an educator, part of what needs to happen is for us uh, as a society to commit to transforming our educational system and transforming it in multiple ways. 
Uh, we need, of course, to actually have curricula that show and, and investigate and inspire students to learn more about the history and ongoing legacies of, of racism. But we also need to diversify uh, teaching. Uh, you know, uh, faculty like myself, I'm an African-American woman, are severely underrepresented. Um, and so this conference, uh, the symposium that we're having um, uh, Wednesday is going to be very important because, yes, we're going to be talking about diversity and inclusion, but also, you know, going beyond the slogan and thinking about what does it mean to radically transform our society, to actually include uh, diverse perspectives in how knowledge is created and how uh, curricula are taught in how communities are led, in how we think about our political system, and so on. Uh, This could be a good place to take a break. When we come back, uh, I'll ask you, uh, Crystal Fleming, uh, you know, the title of your book, uh, How Can We, How Are We Stupid About Race? And we'll get into how we can be less stupid Mm -hmm. about race. Um, We'll have more following this break. On social media at Debunked Pod. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast last year in October. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We are uh, talking uh, to Crystal Fleming. She's an author, public intellectual expert on white supremacy and global racism, author of uh, two books. First of those was Resurrecting Slavery, Racial Legacies and White Supremacy in France. And uh, the latest is the critically acclaimed How to Be Less Stupid About Race on Racism, White Supremacy and the Racial uh, Divide. Uh, so, uh, Crystal Fleming, uh, maybe we jump in here. Uh, the title of the book, How to Be Less Stupid About Race. In, in what, what are the main ra- ways that we are stupid about race? Tom, there are so many. Um, there could be an endless volume series of books on that topic alone. Um, so I, I'll just give like three examples of very, very common forms 
of racial stupidity. Um, and again, I would argue, and as I do in, in my book, that everyone socialized in our society is uh, implicated in this. Either you have, um, you know, uh, thought or said things along the lines I'm going to get into in a moment, or you are surrounded by people who do uh, and therefore affected by it. So um, one of the major fallacies I address in the book is uh, I call it the prejudice fallacy. So this is the idea that the word racism, all it really means is prejudice, racial bias, not liking someone because of their, uh, because of how you think of their race or their ethnicity. Um, and to be clear, uh, racial prejudice is a, a huge problem. Uh, and everyone uh, socialized in a racist society has racial biases, including people of color. Um, uh, so this is not something that you can escape um, because of you know, being exposed to, to, to racial prejudice. But the prejudice fallacy, the idea that racism is prejudice, is wrong because social scientists are very clear on this point. Racism is actually a system of power. Racism is a system of power, which means that it has to do not just with prejudice, although that's part of it, but it has to do with, with uh, specific actions you know, forms of discrimination, uh, policies and practices that create a system of power um, around uh, uh, racism. So the need to understand that racism is not merely about your feelings or about your prejudice, but it's actually about power, it's huge. Um, it's hugely important because then it orients us to things that can be difficult to see if you're not looking for it, and if you're not systematically disadvantaged by it. And that includes, again, institutionalized policies, laws, practices that have created the system of white supremacy. One of the things that I, you know, talk about, and I'll talk about it during the keynote on Wednesday, is, you know, um, theoretically, uh, any kind of racism uh, would be possible. Any kind of uh, system of power around race could be possible. So, you know, we could have in this country a system of Native American supremacy uh, or uh, Latinx or Hispanic supremacy or black supremacy, but we don't. The only form of racism that's ever been institutionalized as a system of power in our country is white supremacy, and that's why we have to talk about it. So the prejudice fallacy, again, is this notion that, oh, well, racism is just my feelings. No, that's prejudice. Racism, and some scholars think of it as prejudice plus power. Um, and so the need to, to understand the implications of that is what I spend a lot of the beginning of the book uh, 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 demystifying. Um, the other uh, big uh, fallacy that I address in the book, and it's related to what I just said about white supremacy, I call it the KKK fallacy. So when... I heard the phrase white supremacy years ago, uh, especially when I was a, a, a younger person, a kid. I always thought, like many of your listeners, you might think of with white supremacy, the KKK or the Ku Klux Klan or, you know, um, you know uh, people who go and burn crosses or, you know, maybe, you know, white nationalists, neo-Nazis. And as I explain on how to be less stupid about race, all of that is part of white supremacy for sure. Um, 
But actually, white supremacy is more than extremism. What's important to understand is that in our society, and the United States is a bit of an outlier in disrespect. As you know, Tom, my first book was about uh, racism and white supremacy in France. And so I have some expertise in analyzing, you know, global racism and how this looks in other societies. And it looks pretty bad. It's horrible all over the world. But the U.S. is an outlier in, in this sense this important historical sense, our country was actually officially built on white supremacy. White supremacy was the norm. And in my work and uh, in my teaching about, uh, about white supremacy, I use a really simple definition so that we can understand that it's not just about the KKK. And I define white supremacy as the social, political, and economic dominance of people socially defined as white. Social, political, and economic dominance of people socially defined as white. And what this means is that, going back to the idea that racism is a system of power, the system of power that our country was built on, whether you look at, you know, actual laws uh, or uh, everyday practices, it's always been white supremacy. So it's important to kind of take a step back and understand that white supremacy is not an outlier in this country. For centuries, it was the norm. And this is one of the other points that uh, Dr. King uh, actually made in, that, in, in the speech I mentioned earlier, where he was talking about racial stupidity and racial ignorance. Well, he actually also comes out and says that white supremacy was taught, you know, in every school and from nearly every pulpit uh, for generations in this country. So it's the norm, and if we're going to change that norm, then we have to first recognize that it's not just the extreme. It's deeply embedded in all of our institutions, right? It's why, even today, uh, so researchers uh, recently put out a study about what Americans think uh, God looks like. Um, and uh, it might not surprise you, but it, it might surprise some of your uh, listeners that, you know, even today, uh, many, many Americans think of God as a white man, like literally a white man. And so if you uh, look up um, uh, the, the research about that these, uh, that these uh, I think they were social psychologists, uh, came up with, um, it, this is based, again, on um, surveys uh, that, that they did asking Americans, what do you think God looks like? Uh, and when I first saw this, uh, this, this sketch, this composite sketch, you know, it's kind of black and white and grainy. And, and, you know, you might think without knowing the context that this is like, you know, maybe a composite sketch for a serial killer. But in fact, it's an image of, of a, of a youngish 30 something, uh, uh, white man. And because this is what Americans say that God looks like. Um, and so where does that idea come from? Well, it comes from, uh, centuries of theologians, of preachers and politicians, and other authorities in society, right, teaching that, you know, whiteness is divine, that whiteness is better than, you know, every, everything else, um, and that, you know, this is in some ways the cultural religion of our country. So white supremacy is the norm. Um, it's not... Uh, you know, just extremism, although that's part of it. Um, so 
the last fallacy uh, I'll just put on the table, and maybe then we can, um, you know, continue uh, to go whatever direction you'd like, Tom. Um, but uh, the third fallacy is the colorblind fallacy. So you may have said or you may have heard someone say, I don't see color or I don't see race. Um, and the fact is, research is indisputable on the subject. That is, if you are uh, socialized uh, at, you know, if you're socialized within a society like ours with, with a long history of racism, then you cannot escape being taught to see color, being taught to make assumptions about people on the basis of their race. Everything from research on implicit bias to uh, research on stereotyping, we know that you see color. Um, and so one of the most important things I try to convey to audiences is that if we want to change our society for the better, we need to stop denying that we individually and collectively are implicated in the system, that we are implicated in racism and that we have racial biases. Um, again, you know, to go back to the, the KKK fallacy and, and the um, prejudice fallacy, I want to be clear, everyone is implicated in racial prejudice, but the only system of racism we have is white supremacy. But that also means that we all have, we all have to look within to see how we've been shaped by the system. For people of color uh, and African-Americans, uh, that also includes thinking about things like internalized oppression, how uh, we can come to be socialized to valorize lighter skin over darker skin, uh, et cetera. But these three fallacies, the prejudice fallacy, the KKK fallacy, and colorblind fallacy, they produce a lot of harm. Right. So this is not just about um, recognizing how we're all in this, but also how we are, you know, certain members of our society, people who are racialized minorities, are systematically harmed uh, by this ignorance. And just the other thing I want to say, Tom, is uh, for your listeners who might want to know more about that study I was mentioning about what God looks like and the idea that for many Americans still today, uh, God looks like a man, first of all, and looks like a white man. Uh, this was from a study from psychologists uh, at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And if you, if you wanted to Google it, you could see the image of what Americans think God looks like. Yeah, we'll, we'll send our listeners uh, over there. By the way, if you've just joined us, we're talking with Crystal Fleming, and uh, Crystal Fleming is author of a couple of books. The most recent, critically acclaimed, How to Be Less Stupid About Race on Racism, White Supremacy, and the Racial Divide. And she's been outlining some of the uh, fallacies about race uh, in in that book. So, Crystal Fleming, I, I want to uh, ask you about this. It seems to be... a a lot of circles, a yearning for to believe that we're in a post-racial society. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of different motivations for that, but some of those sincere, very sincere, right? And and yeah, the, the fact of the election of President Obama was was seen in some circles as oh, may you know maybe we've made it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, I, what what I'm hearing you say is this: this is very very deeply embedded in American history and American society. Um, so I, I, I'll frame the question this yeah. way. Have, have we made progress, and, and is a post-racial society possible? So thank you for that question. I want to start with the, the last part of that question. Is a post 
racial society possible? Are we there? Have we been there? And I think that, um, you know, there's a, 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 a statistic, a, a fact that um, I share in my talks and, and, and in the book um, about Obama's presidency and what we can learn about whether we arrived at a post-racial society when he was elected. So this story about this fact. Um, when President Obama was, was elected um, in 2008, uh, researchers uh, looked into the size of the wealth gap, so the racial wealth gap between white Americans uh, and African Americans uh, and other people of color. And I think one of the most stunning facts uh, about the racial wealth gap during Obama's presidency is just how unbelievably wide it was. Uh, so when we had a black president in Washington, D.C., right, our nation's capital, white uh, Washington residents had 81 times the wealth of their African-American neighbors. I want to repeat that for those who didn't hear me the first time. When we had a black president at this moment, when some people said, we have arrived at a post-racial society, right there in, the, in, in, uh, in Washington, D.C., in our nation's capital, white uh, uh, Americans had 81 times the wealth of their black neighbors in Washington, D.C. And for me, there's a few other facts that can illustrate just how far we uh, are and were <laughs> from uh, some kind of post-racial society even when we had uh, a black man, um, and to be clear, a biracial African-American in the White House. Um, so, no, we were not there. We are not there. Um, but the yearning for a post-racial society, you know, to your point, I, I agree with you. For many, it's very sincere. Um, and from many, you know, I think from um, many perspectives, it's understandable, given our country's very violent and uh, unjust history around race and racism, who wouldn't want to move beyond that? Who wouldn't want to believe that we can arrive uh, in a society where these problems are no longer with us? Um, now, the problem, though, is that I think that for many people, again, especially those who have not studied racism, who, you know, have not looked at just you know, how deep the rabbit hole goes in terms of uh, the way racism is embedded in all of our major institutions and how much cumulative disadvantage and cumulative privilege has been built into our system. I think when you come at the issue, again, from a place of ignorance and not from a place of, of knowledge, then you vastly underestimate what would need to happen to actually create a society that you could think of as post-racial. First of all, to go back to the racial wealth gap, there could not be a racial wealth gap anymore. You cannot have a society where, you know, and, and by the way, that, that statistic from Washington, D.C., uh, where whites had, um, white households had 81 times the wealth of their black neighbors, it's actually worse in some other cities um, in the United States. I think in L.A., that stat is even worse. But, you know, you can't have a racial wealth gap. You can't have um, a people of color underrepresented 
uh, in, in our politics and our political leadership. You can't have um, systemic bias in hiring decisions, for example, uh, and, and have a post-racial society. So because we have all of this empirical data that points to uh, bias, points to discrimination, and also points to cumulative disadvantage and cumulative privilege for white Americans, then no, we're not there. And if, you know, and I, I will maybe as a carrot, uh, not answer the question about is a post-racial society possible. Um, I would tell uh, listeners that this is something that I get into uh, in the last chapter of the book, which, you know, uh, after going through the history and the present-day uh, realities of racism, I, in the last chapter, asked, well, what can we do about it and, and what is possible? Um, but what I will say is that regardless of whether you think it's possible to uh, completely erase every trace of racism uh, in our society, wherever you end up on that question, I know for sure that, you know, radical change is possible. I know for sure that uh, it is possible to change policies, to change political practices, to change political institutions. And if people didn't believe in transformative change, uh, we never would have seen, or at least not as, uh, not when we saw it, we wouldn't have seen the ending of slavery. We wouldn't have seen abolition of mo- abolitionist movements. We wouldn't have seen suffrage rights uh, for women. We wouldn't have seen the different kinds of transformative change uh, happen, uh, you know, even against great odds. Uh, now, does the fact that change is possible mean, again, that you can get rid of all, every trace of racism? Um, I'll, I'll let your listeners uh, check out my book on that question, but I'll say it again, that no matter what you think about that philosophically, in the here and the now, we can change our society for the better. Um, to your question, Tom, about, you know, have we made progress? Um, I think that we need to, and here I would concur with, you know, um, some other analysts uh, uh, like uh, the historian Ibram Kendi, uh, as, as well as others who argue that we need to be able to look at how uh, racism has changed over time, uh, but also how there has been, um, you know, anti-racist change. And I think that we need to be able to hold both of those in our minds, that is, uh, that you can see anti-racist transformations and change, and that racism and forms of racism uh, also change and transform, usually as a form of backlash to anti-racist change. So that's one of the constants um, we've seen in our country's history, that when there has been anti-racist progress, when there has been, um, you know, even interracial solidarity, examples of interracial solidarity for, uh, you know, the promotion of human rights and civil rights, then there has also been a reaction on the part of forces that would like to maintain white supremacy to take two steps back, uh, to uh, challenge uh, any effort to undo white supremacy. So um, that's how, you know, that's how I think about these issues. We're talking with Crystal Fleming. Uh, by the way, you can check out her website, crystalfleming.com. And the latest uh, book is um, How to Be Less Stupid About Race on Racism, White Supremacy, and the Racial Divide. We'll have more with uh, Crystal Fleming following this break.
Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast last year in October. You're listening to Access Utah. We uh, have as our guest for the hour, Crystal Fleming. Uh, Crystal Fleming, author previously of Resurrecting Slavery, Racial Legacies, and White Supremacy in France. The latest is the critically acclaimed How to Be Less Stupid About Race on Racism, White Supremacy, and the Racial Divide. You can reach this program if you'd like with your question or comment. You can email us to upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at uh, gmail.com. So, uh, Crystal Fleming, you talk in the book about um, anti-racism. You just referenced that before the, the break. Um, uh, uh-huh. I, I think Ibram Kendi's great, uh, latest book is How to Be an Anti-Racist. I, is, uh-huh. is that a prescription? That we, we should be anti-racist, learn how to do that? Well, I think uh, I, I would hesitate to call it a prescription, but I think it's part of what we need to um, be very serious about uh, considering, not just as individuals, but as entire communities. Um and I, I would say that, you know, um, uh, you know, mentioning uh, uh, Kendi's Ken, book, um, I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but my understanding is that one of the things he says of the book is that, like, everyone can be racist and we all need to be anti-racist. Um, I'm not, and, you know, uh, I would say that I think one of the things I talk about in my book and one of the things I talk about when I meet with community members is, again, um, we need to be clear that racism as a system of power is not some kind of equal opportunity situation. The only people in our society who have been historically positioned to transform their biases into a system of power are white Americans. And I think that it's very important to um, not create a false equivalence between the experiences and the power of people of color and the experiences and the power of uh, our white uh, neighbors and uh, co-citizens. Um, at the same time, anti-racism is something that, yes, we all need to be involved in. And I think for me, a big part of that is acknowledging, again, the system of power that we're living with. I also think it's important for all of us to acknowledge and think, and think about our learning process. So one of the things that um, is very important to me to do when I speak to audiences and, and when I write about these issues is to be transparent about my own process. You know, a lot of people could make an assumption uh, seeing me as an African-American educator and I've, you know, spent my career uh, researching these issues. Um, they could assume, okay, well, you have known about uh, this topic for a long time or, you know, and the fact is, no. Um, when I was growing up, as I write about and how to be less stupid about race, when I was growing up, my family did not talk about racism. Um, in fact, the idea that, you know, I don't see color or that you're taught not to see color, that was kind of my household. Um, I write a lot about my mother, uh, who's amazing. Uh, her name's Barbara. And, um, I mean, she's an incredible um, mother. Uh, but one of the things she did, um, you know, certainly to try to shield me from the harm of racism was to try to create this kind of bubble where, um, you know, I was told that I could do, <clears throat> pardon me, anything, that there was nothing that could limit me. And I totally understand why she chose to shield me from the harsh realities of racism. But there's also a cost to that, right? And, um, 
you know, when I started to research and study these issues in college, um, little by little, my mom started to share with me and other family members started to share with me their experiences and what they have had to overcome. And so as I write about in, in the beginning of my book, I had and I have uh, an ongoing uh, learning process. Um, I actually learned about systemic racism for the first time in a sociology class taught by a white professor, and that class changed my life. I learned not only about racism, but also about class oppression and about power, as well as about the possibilities of resistance and transformative change. So I think that when we go about the work of anti-racism, to go back to your question, Tom, um, I think that uh, as, as we go about trying to bring about anti-racist change in our communities and in our institutions, maybe at our place of employment and our educational institutions as well, um, I think we also have to be, at least I advocate, being transparent about, um, you know, our own learning process so that we understand no matter how woke you think you are or, you know, no matter how much work you may have already done around these issues, particularly if you are a white American, but even if you're a person of color and a black uh, person uh, who may be already implicated in anti-racist activism, you will know that the work never ends. Um, one of my favorite uh, anti-racist educators and change agents uh, is Jane Elliott. Uh, some of your listeners might have heard about her. She did the famous blue-eyed, brown-eyed uh, experiment in her class uh, of elementary school students following the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. to go back to MLK. Um, she was, you know, just so heartbroken over uh, his murder and wanted to know how could she make change in her sphere. And she was a teacher, so she decided to start where she was. And I advocate that for your listeners, to start where you are and to look at your sphere of influence. And she decided, and it, it was controversial, but it continues to be um, a teaching tool, but she set up a, a, a system, a hierarchy in her classroom and said, okay, I'm going to teach, uh, it was an entirely white uh, class in Iowa, but I'm going to teach you all about prejudice and about power. And she said that the brown-eyed students were going to be the privileged category. They were going to have the nice long recess and the you know, be favored in class and taught uh, how brilliant they were. And, they, you know, and, and the blue-eyed students would be uh, on the lower end of the spectrum, and, 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 and they would get less time on the playground, they would get less privilege and so on. And, you know, what was, and if the listeners want to check, uh, check out more about her work, you can look up, there's this great documentary by PBS Frontline. Uh, it's called A Class Divided, A Class Divided. And um, what's amazing about that experiment that Jane Elliott did is that within just like a day or two of creating this, this artificial made-up hierarchy in her classroom, the students, in fact, it was, didn't even take a whole day. Immediately, the students started to behave in ways that reflected the hierarchy. And researchers subsequently have shown that the test scores of the students, the, the brown-eyed students who were told that they were smarter, that they were better than the blue-eyed students, they, they did better on their tests, and the blue-eyed students did worse. What do you think happens 
when you create an artificial made-up system, a racial system of hierarchy and privilege that you institutionalize as a society for centuries. If you see an effect in the classroom in one day or two days, again, imagine what happens in one, two, or three centuries. So um, Jane Elliott, to go back to anti-racism, she's in her 80s, I think, now, and she's not done. And she, you know, she still does anti-racist work. Uh, she's coming to New York, um, where I live, uh, in a couple months. She's still, you know, she does her work all over the world as well. But she'll be one of the first to tell you that after decades of being an anti-racist activist, she is still uh, aware of her own biases, right? Because, like, all, you know, like your listeners, uh, you know, she's socialized in our society, in our racist society. That means that even, you know, she has internalized biases that she is aware of and that, you know, she continues to be aware of. So I think, again... Uh, the kind of anti-racism that I advocate is one that certainly involves, um, you know, transforming our communities, uh, one that, uh, you know, urges people to not just say or think, I'm not racist, but to actually get involved in the work of anti-racism and ask, what are you doing to address racism? What are you doing to learn more about racism? And what are you doing to work where you are? in your community, and to also build with allies, build with other people who share the value of creating a society, yes, that's more inclusive, that uh, is more humane, uh, that is more compassionate, uh, and that uh, is grounded in a respect and recognition of our common uh, dignity and of our common rights uh, to uh, enjoy the fruits of our society. So that's, again, the kind of anti-racist transformation that I advocate. And if your listeners uh, uh, do pick up the book, How to Be Less Stupid About Race, again, in the last chapter, I go through 10 suggestions for how to uh, transform what I'm teaching in the book and what you hopefully are also learning beyond my work, uh, but to transform uh, that knowledge into concrete change. Um, and we've been talking with uh, Crystal Fleming, and uh, that book is How to Be Less Stupid About Race. Um, it's available now. You can find out more about Crystal Fleming at her website, crystalfleming.com. Crystal Fleming, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me, Tom. Thank you for listening today. Next up is Bread and Butter, a culinary chronicle with Lael Gilbert. Many otherwise astute folks use the terms hot chocolate and hot cocoa interchangeably, probably because they are both hot and chocolatey. But these two beverages are not the same thing. Technically speaking, hot cocoa is made by blending cocoa powder with either milk or powdered milk and sugar, while hot chocolate is what many call sipping chocolate, made from chopped bits of actual chocolate melted and blended with milk or cream. While both hot chocolate and hot cocoa contain chocolate as the focus ingredient, the process for making these hot drinks differs. Hot chocolate is intense, decadent, chocolatey more than milky and thick, something like a thin ganache. True drinking chocolate is more velvety than its powdered cousin. 
You find it commonly in European countries, sipped from steaming tiny demi-toss cups at corner cafes. While typical American fashion is to guzzle our less viscous hot cocoa from jumbo mugs in the parking lot of 7-Eleven, it was, in fact, on a winter day in northern Italy when I tried sipping chocolate for the first time. I'd spent the whole day walking in less than comfortable shoes and inadequate and wet socks. It was cold, the kind of damp cold that a Utah kid never gets used to. The freezing air spilled through the fabric of my coat and my fingers ached. I stopped at a small cafe and sat at a table in the corner. The hot chocolate came in a steaming mug. The surface swirled with milk foam. Two crunchy almond biscotti sat on a charmingly mismatched saucer beside it. I sipped, savored, and warmed. I dipped the crunchy twice-baked cookies and consumed each slathered bite with rapture. It filled me, warmed me, and satisfied me from head to toe. So you can see why I've become a bit fixated on replicating the experience. I've found several recipes and finagled them a bit to achieve perfection. For Italian-style hot chocolate, this is what you can do. Use one cup of half and half. If you aren't a coffee drinker, you may not have half and half in your fridge. And you can substitute 2% milk for adequate creaminess, but I would not go any skinnier than that. Use two teaspoons arrowroot. Arrowroot is a thickener like cornstarch, but it makes the drink taste smooth and nutty, as opposed to the slightly gelatinous taste that cornstarch leaves. I found arrowroot in the health food section of the grocery store. Use three strips of orange zest. Chocolate and orange is a classic Italian combination. Just peel off a one-inch strip with a vegetable peeler, keeping it as thin as possible. Two tablespoons sugar and four ounces of bittersweet chocolate. 70% cacao is recommended, but I used what I had in my pantry, which was 60%. Bittersweet chocolate chips. Don't consider using those cheap waxy chips you got on sale at Christmas. Splurge on something with lots of cacao. If you don't like dark chocolate, don't despair. Combined with the other ingredients, the dark bitterness of the intense chocolate mellows to creamy sweetness. To make it, mix a bit of the cold half and half with the arrowroot in a small bowl until it's smooth. Then, in a saucepan over medium heat, warm the milk and orange zest until it's bubbling around the edges. Remove the orange zest and stir in the sugar and arrowroot mixture. Cook for about one minute more, but don't overcook it or the arrowroot will begin to break down. Then remove it from the heat and whisk in the chocolate until it's smooth and drink up. Serve it in little demitasse cups with a biscotti on the side and feel free to stick a pinky in the air as you sip, but mostly be very warm and very happy. This is Lael Gilbert for Bread and Butter. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR, Logan. KUSK, Vernal. KUSL, Richfield. KUST, Moab. KCEU, Price. KUSU, FM, Logan. Also heard at upr.org.